This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 10th, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, staff writer Paul Vusen joins us with a debate about the newly named Megalion Age. That's the latest division of the Holocene Epic. Yes, there is a new name for what the time that we live in. And staff writer Kelly Servick is here to talk about using one bug, the samurai wasp, to control another bug, the marmalated stink bug, and what happens when this type of biocontrol goes out of control. And don't forget to tweet to us or write to us about this month's book segment. We'll be reading The Book of Why, The New Science and Cause of Effect. You can tweet to us at Science Magazine or email us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. First up, we have staff writer Paul Vusin. Hi, Paul. Hello. And we're going to talk about the mega lion. And that's not a super big lion, but a newly named division of the Holocene epic. That's the epic we live in. And the mega lion is now the age that we live in. It's a new age, Paul. It is. Okay. Yeah. Welcome. <laughs> so what are the borders of the mega lion? The mega lion starts about 4,200 years ago and it ends, well, who knows, ends right now. <laughs> and what is it named after? It's not actually even M-E-G-A-L-I-O-N. How do you No, know? it's yeah. not. It's named after a northeast northeastern state in India and a cave that the golden spike for it was taken from. Can you tell me what a golden spike is? <laughs> I can. Because yeah. I was reading the paper and I was like, this is a railroad term? That's a golden <laughs> spike. So for each time you have a new geological time period, you need a an example of the rock record to specify when this time period happened. And this golden spike is the exemplar of this change. Okay. So let's talk about this decision to start a new age within an epoch. So who gets to make that decision? So there's a, a bureaucracy. It's one of my favorite scientific institutions called the International Commission on Stratigraphy. And it's this association of geologists that governs geologic time. And they have these long tenure debates about whether a age or stage or epoch should be named and the evidence for it. About 10 years ago, there, there was an effort. They're looking at the Holocene and which is the last 11,700 years since the ice age, the most recent time period. And people seem to be using the terms early, middle and late Holocene a lot. And really, this came from an effort just to standardize what those dates meant. Mm -hmm. 
They'd already had a few markers in the Holocene at this point? Uh, no, they, they didn't. They so didn't have any They divisions. just knew the start of the Holocene. Oh, okay. So they put all these divisions down. But this is the one, the Megalion, starting 4,200 years ago, or supposedly starting 4,200 years ago. This is the most contentious. It is, yeah. Why are people not happy with the Megalion in particular when they divided the Holocene into three ages? It, it has to do with linking this beginning of this time this age, to a drought that may or may not be global, right? There's evidence that a drought existed in the Middle East and other areas, and that started in about the 1990s that this evidence first started to appear in the records. And people started hunting for that all over the world. And you know, as one paleoclimatologist told me, for every one sample where you do see a bump, you know, these, these little wiggles of a record, yeah. you might have two samples where you don't see it. The essential argument is that it's premature to take this as a really kind of defining global event. And they didn't want to just divide it into three equal parts. They wanted something to peg this time change to. Right. Yeah. So essentially, that's what they were trying to do was divide it into three equal parts. But they need to have some sort of signal in the rock record to that was clearly visible. They can't just go dividing it willy nilly. There are still some people for this, right? They think that this was an important time. This is an important change. Is there a division between people who study climate versus people who study rocks versus people who, say, look at the archaeological record? Mm -hmm. Typically, when you think about geology, you're thinking about really deep time yeah. in the past, millions and millions and billions of years ago. Yeah, the Holocene's only 11,000 years. I mean, they also named all the other times at right. the beginning yeah. of time, right? And for those longer time periods, a lot of paleoclimate scientists, you know, they often look at things like ice core records, stalagmites that are not relevant for these long, deep geological time records. And these two communities don't really have a lot of crossover. And some people see that as the manifestation of the megaline as an example of that or symptom of that where they didn't wait to see that there was broad consensus that existed. There is support for this from many people. There are signs of a bump at 4,200 or 4,000 mm -hmm. on records, really all seven continents. But the signal as a global strong event, a lot of people question that. And what about the archaeology? What about what people were doing at that time? This is a very early period. You have the rise of the Akkadian Empire, which is really what originated the, this first evidence in mm -hmm. Syria. And some other civilizations, there's you know, some evidence of collapse or decline of these early civilizations that yeah. could potentially be pegged to this drought. Some archaeologists also uh, disagree with some of these interpretations. Archaeology as a, as a discipline, there's always a lot of interpretation that goes into it. And right. you know, it's hard to have very clear cases of climatically caused collapses. Right. My favorite part of the story is, as you mentioned, this is a 10-year event. This is not something... They're going to be able to take back anytime soon. Do you think that in 10 years, this is going to be revisited pretty seriously? I think so. You know, some of the evidence we cite in the story hasn't been published yet, so mm -hmm. it wasn't even there for them to consider. And yeah. fair enough that they would not consider it until it's actually passed peer review and been published. The question is how much people really invest in taking the time to dispute it. A lot of people I've talked with have also said, oh, well, okay, they named this and it's a useful date to have mm -hmm. because we do make these references to early, middle, and late and no one's actually going to call it the Megalion and you know we're just going to ignore this and move on with our lives. This might cause enough dust for people to look at this or 
it might cause the paleoclimate community to become aware of this event because they had kind of this cottage industry of people who did see it in their records and yeah. had workshops about it and others who really haven't been paying attention to it. So it could increase focus on this, on studying whether it is truly a global event or not. What would be the harm in just leaving it that way? I don't think there would be a ton of harm, but, you know, it comes down to just proper science. And, yeah. you know, if this is the standard they have for a signal, you, you want it to be global. And there is a potential that given we have this event now and it's kind of standardized and given this imprimatur, that people will then look at new paleoclimate records and say, oh, well, this bump at 3,900 years ago, maybe we time shift that a little bit. And that's indicative of this oh. broader event when actually it would not be. There's a confirmation bias possibility, right. not necessarily, but it's a possible outcome of this. Human endeavors can easily shape how science is conducted, of course. Yeah. Speaking of which, uh, another dust up about naming things. What about the Anthropocene? How does that, the Anthropocene, how does that fit into this story? Yeah, it, it, it doesn't. <laughs> In a funny way, it, you know, and a lot of the initial coverage really thought it did. And so the Anthropocene is a potential epic being debated still, still being considered. There hasn't been a proposal. By the same body. By the same body. This would take over from the Holocene. So oh. it would be, you know, not looking at these smaller divisions of the Holocene, but really just saying, oh, human humanity started becoming this global shaping force at X time period. And when would that be? As of uh, earlier this year, the target had been the late 1940s, early 1950s. It's a time called the Great Acceleration when the Industrial Revolution really kicked full steam globally, emissions really spiked, and you have the global plutonium signal of atom bomb. So, so that might be the next debate in 10 years. Oh, it'll certainly be. A, it'll, it'll, it'll be in the next few years. All right. Thank you so much, Paul. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. Paul Vusin is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to his story at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Stay tuned for an interview with staff writer Kelly Servick about using samurai wasps to control marmalated stink bugs that have invaded the United States, whether we want to or not. Now we have staff writer Kelly Servick, and your feature this week is about what happens when biocontrol gets a little out of control. I wouldn't say it's gone completely awry in this case, but here, here's the setup. Researchers were checking to see if invasive stink bugs from Asia that came to the U.S. could be controlled, a.k.a. killed or decimated, by wasps also brought up over from Asia. But before they could find out if this was a workable plan, the wasps showed up anyway. Does that about sum it up, Kelly? That is the shortest summary that I can think of. <laughs> Very good way to put it. Thank you. So let, let's go to our, our two contenders here. We have the marmorated stink bug in one corner. What's so bad about these guys? The brown marmorated stink bug is not only really well known to farmers, but also to homeowners. So not only do they consume a really wide variety of crops from corn and soybeans to berries and fruit trees and tomatoes, uh, but they also have this really problematic habit of escaping winter weather by pulling up in people's homes, sometimes in very large numbers that are quite distressing to yeah. homeowners. And they're they're heavily armored. They look like little spaceships on legs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they are stinky, right? Yes, I have not. Smelling stink bugs was not part of the research that I did for this story, but I have read that they are described as either a coriander-like or cilantro-like mm -hmm. odor when smushed. 
Yeah, that doesn't sound so bad. It doesn't sound so bad, although in maybe in large numbers, it would be overwhelming. But I've also heard that if they do decide to descend on your crops, that your food will have a slight stink buggy smell to it, too. I had not heard that, but that is a problem, too. Yeah, that's And also, good. from my understanding, as soon as they sort of stick their little stylet in and, and snack on a fruit, it creates, it sort of corrupts the flesh of the fruit around mm -hmm. it. So at that point, those fruits are unsellable anyway. Oh, wow. Stinky or no. And so these are invaders. And they, do we know how they got here, when they got here? No, like with a lot of invasive species, it's sort of presumed that there were many different introductions mm -hmm. that were sort of ferried across the ocean by global trade routes of various kinds. If you think about all the plants that are moving back and forth between Asia and North America, there's no way that you could keep them bug free. Right. So it's presumed that they came in many times. And how widespread are stink bugs at this point? So at this point, there are populations both along the northeastern coast and in the west and sort of moving in towards the middle. I think there are a handful of states where they haven't been spotted but uh, many states, they're considered both a severe nuisance and a real threat to agriculture. Mm -hmm. Researchers were looking for a way to combat them that wasn't killing them with pesticides that wasn't working. My understanding is that it's pretty tricky to control the stink bugs with pesticides. And when you try to do that, you're also getting rid of other potentially beneficial insects that you have in your crop. Researchers then were looking for a biocontrol solution to the stink bug. Yeah, this is a group at the U.S. Department of Agriculture that specializes in this approach called classical biological control, where you go to another country and look for the natural enemies of your pest and hopefully bring them back and release them. And this process was going on when someone else found, another researcher found the samurai wasp, the one that they had decided might be the best candidate. It was already here. That's right. Yeah, it had been several years of work for this team at USDA. And then a separate team uh, also at USDA was surveying stink bug eggs in their area in Maryland for various sort of native um, mm -hmm. wasps that might parasitize the eggs of the stink bugs. And what they found was the samurai wasp, which also inserts its eggs into the stink bug eggs and um, basically destroys the next generation of stink bugs. So the samurai wasp, did it come from the same place as the stink bugs? And, and what is it is it part of its life cycle to lay eggs in other eggs? Yes, the samurai wasp and the brown marmorated stink bug are both native to Asia, several different mm. countries in Asia where they've been recovered. Um, the first samurai wasp was found in Japan, which is why it, it inspired this samurai common name. Doesn't wear robes. <laughs> no, they're, the parallels are a little shoddy in my opinion. <laughs> but So it's not like the samurai wasp doesn't look like a samurai. What does it look like? Yeah, despite its very threatening name, yeah. the samurai wasp does not have a stinger and it is uh, smaller than a sesame seed. It's oh, wow. one or two millimeters long. So it's not the kind of wasp that you picture in a hive in your porch. Whereas a stink bug is, I don't know, like a, like a size of a dime, right? Yeah, it's like the size of your fingernail. Mm -hmm. You could fit, you know, more than a dozen of these little wasps on the shield-shaped back of one stink bug. And then to your question, um, yeah, these are natural enemies that presumably evolved together over a long period of time. And there have been rates of up to 90% parasitism in certain areas where the samurai wasps are dramatically cutting down stink bug populations in Asia. What was the holdup for releasing the samurai wasp into the wild using this classical biological control? As you said, they've been looking at this for several years. Part of the answer to why it takes so long is that people are very, very careful about 
intentionally releasing one exotic species to control another, partially because there have been some very ugly examples of unexpected effects of a release species. A lot of people reference the cane toads in Australia mm-hmm. in, in that context. And so I think most people would say rightfully so. Um, the USDA and, and other regulatory agencies around the world put in place this pretty complicated process where you have to do everything you possibly can in the lab or in sort of a quarantined environment to show that the biocontrol candidate is not likely to attack or eat or parasitize native insects or plants in some Mm -hmm. cases and isn't going to cause more harm than good in its new home. That's not going to be easy to do in the lab. It's really complicated. It actually amounts to these little tests where you give, in this case, the wasp the choice of different stink bug eggs Mm -hmm. and see sort of where they gravitate and where they choose to put their eggs. So what does the appearance of the samurai wasp on the scene out there in the wild do to this process? What does it mean? Does it speed things along? Does it negate it entirely? Yeah, it's kind of a confusing situation, I think, for the researchers that were working on this. In this case, these researchers are planning to go ahead with their petition to the department in USDA that would approve the releases. So they want to sort of go through the standard route and get approval just in case they still want to release the strain that they had been studying in quarantine for all this time. At the same time, there are already field experiments going on, about a dozen of them, where people are capturing and breeding and re-releasing the accidentally introduced population of samurai wasps to see how they behave and sort of in the hopes of making whatever biocontrol strategies that they use a little bit smarter Mm -hmm. as they go forward, because they do have access to this sort of extra little sneak peek at what what it's going to be like. Has this happened before where a biocontrol option was being considered and then nature took over? There are a ton of examples of this. And as soon as I started looking into it and talking to people, I immediately had a huge pile of different cases. Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting about the stink bug case is that, one, it's such a high-profile pest, and two, they had gotten so far towards this proposal to release this particular wasp. But yeah, there have been a couple of other examples where someone was already working on a biocontrol strategy. There was a group that was looking into a fungus that kills gypsy moths, which are very damaging to forests in the U.S., and they had been unable to get the fungus to establish. Mm -hmm. um, And then it arrived in New England on its own and started spreading and killing gypsy moths. When it comes to samurai wasps, are they looking to to help them? Or, you know, could they just say, oh, they've invaded, they're going to go their way, they're going to take care of this population of stink bugs for us? I think the evidence so far is that this wasp is spreading and there's there's no getting rid of it at this point. But I think there are researchers who are interested in in sort of helping it and using it and sort of encouraging it to do its work if it does prove to be an effective control agent against the stink bug, which we still have to prove because there could be all kinds of differences in the habitat and and just the environment of this wasp Mm -hmm. that change the way it behaves compared to the way it behaves in Asia. Mm -hmm. What about examples of biocontrol that's worked in the past? I mean, I think we're all familiar with, as you said, the cane toad and the mongoose in Hawaii. But what about things that did work out? One of the sort of classic success stories is this situation in Africa where there was an effort to control this cassava mealy bug. And that was also a wasp, this one from South America, that was brought in and is estimated to have saved millions of lives by preserving this staple crop in Africa. Mm. It is kind of a classic tale of, you know, sending in one animal to get another animal and that going out of control. So I don't think people would want to change the way we regulate it 
But it also seems like so much trade, so much stuff is moving across the face of the earth. Is there going to be any way to to slow down this process even if we wanted to? It seems really unlikely. I think that the resources that regulators have are going towards the pest species that they know to be worried about. And all of these other species that might be helpful or might be neutral or we don't really know, I mean, there's just no way of of tracing how they move around the world. And so I think it's just a matter of watching out for them and sort of being able to gauge their impacts as they emerge. But that was sort of the overwhelming sentiment I got from people, even just talking about regulations was, you know, we have regulations in place to try to keep everything safe. We try to go through this really careful process to study biocontrol agents. And in the end, there are just limits to what we can control. Okay. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you. Kelly Servick is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to her story at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. If you want to weigh in on this month's book selection, The Book of Why, The New Science of Cause and Effect, by Uta Pearl and Dana McKenzie, tweet to us at Science Magazine or email us your thoughts and questions at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. That's for the August 30th episode. And that concludes this edition of The Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or you can listen to us on the Science website. There you will also find links to the research and news stories discussed in the episode. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.